Good morning again. So some of you will be aware I really, really like food. <laughs> I like cooking food. I like eating food. I like going out for food. I like having people over for meals. I like going over to other people's houses for food. I get very angry when I am hungry. And I get <laughs> even angrier still when I mess up a meal. Uh, for Kevin's birthday a couple of months ago, I brought over a couple of steaks because that seemed like a good thing to do for a birthday present. And I overcooked the steaks, and it really upset me. Like, it like, put me in a bad mood for like two days. Uh, <laughs> there's thing about this week. There's a moment in the fourth Harry Potter film where Ron's kind of a, a jerk to Hermione, and she turns around, and she's like, Ron, you spoil everything. Thing, and that's like my brain to myself when I mess up a steak, which <laughs> feels a bit like overkill to me. I realized that uh, I, I talk to my food as well. Like <laughs> when I was preparing this sermon, I was also cooking some food, and I was, t- I was like, Oh, you've been marinating for two days. That's going to be really delicious, isn't it? <laughs> like, like it's not listening to you. My best friend in England, when I was uh, made pastor of this church, bought me, had like a book made for me called The the Food That Made Me. And it's a picture of me on the front, and then the picture on the inside is just me eating on every single page. (laughs) Any of you that have me on Facebook will know that the majority of my pictures is me eating with the Barkers and the Ryans. It's very nice. Uh, here's me at home with my dad, and some, that's the, my friend who made me the book. Most of them are just me, though, which is like <laughs> really weird and self-indulgent. I will say, this is because my mother insists on taking photos of me, so you can tell kind of like by my face how happy I am with this some of the time. <laughs> The other pictures of me on Facebook are basically just me looking sad because I've finished the meal. (laughs) This is all to say, food is something of a passion project for me. During the 24 hours of prayer that we had at Wellspring when I was praying, I believe I got a word from the Lord. And it's okay to be a bit skeptical when a pastor says at the front of church, I've had a word, because often that's followed by, and you need to buy me a jet. However, the word I believe I received, and I'd be open to others' interpretation on this, is deeper wells and longer tables. Deeper wells and longer tables, and that's really set in my heart in the last couple of weeks. I had to look up what a deeper well was. I didn't actually know what effect a well being deeper would do, but it means the water is flat, fresher. It means that you're, it's healthier. It means that you're able to provide for more people. And, of course, longer tables ensure that there is always room. No matter who turns up, who they are, whatever reason they are, whether they're late, whether they're confused, whether they weren't invited, a long enough table means that there is room for everyone. So looking at the book of Romans this week, I thought I would think about food for a little while and that Jesus is Lord of the dinner table. Just to introduce myself again, I'm James Shaw. I'm the pastor here, believe it or not. And we're really pleased that you could join us this Sunday. 
This month we've been going through the book of Romans, and in particular, this idea of Romans disarmed. And by that, what we've been doing is looking at the book of Romans, which is sometimes a book that has been used to exclude, that has been used to oppress. And we're looking at the fact that I don't think, and lots of people don't think, this was ever the author, who's St. Paul, it was ever his intention. And last week I talked about the very start of the letter and how Paul is actually setting himself against the Roman Empire in this letter. He begins with this line, Paul, the slave of the Messiah, Jesus, set apart for the gospel of God. He identifies himself as a slave, which is not something he should do. He identifies Jesus as Messiah and not Caesar. That's not something he should do. And he talked, we talked about the gospel of God rather than the gospel of Rome. He is using seditious language throughout. This is radical language. We're talking about Jesus being Lord. And of course, if Jesus is Lord, that means that Caesar is not. And then I talked a little bit about the slave girl. There we go. Iris. Someone who is pretty much homeless in Rome, someone without respect or honor or love or a story, and that she finds all of these things in the welcoming and loving arms of a Christian community. So there's kind of two issues when talking about food in Rome and in the book of Romans particularly, and I realized that I kind of needed two weeks to do that, which is okay because one of them fits in very nicely into next week's topic of radical inclusion. No, that's this week. Next week's topic of radical compromise. This week's sermon is on radical inclusion. Radical inclusion and radical welcome and the real presence of Jesus that we find around the dinner table. And to do that, as we heard, we have to jump right to the very end of the book of Romans, right to chapter 14. Now, You can read it yourself or you can trust me, but there has been a lot that has happened between the first sentence of Romans and Romans 14, where we are now. Paul has talked about the nature of sin. He's talked about how even when we are at our worst, still God reached out and God loved us. He's talked about all the things that could separate us from the love of God and the fact that none of them ever can or ever will. There is a lot of rich, beautiful, important stuff in Romans. But what's interesting to me is that for Paul, it seems the issue is how you welcome people around the dinner table. He turns his attention to the issue affecting the Roman churches. And it's an issue that clearly is threatening to tear these churches apart. He spends about two chapters on what we do with food, how we act around the dinner table. That's how important it is to him. Because he's writing to a group of people to whom inclusion doesn't necessarily come naturally. They've been used to that world where Caesar is Lord and not many people are invited to that imperial banquet table. Certainly, no one in their community would have been. 
This is a culture where what you eat and who you eat it with is everything. And the table of Caesar was a table of exclusion. The imperial banquet is not a place where they would have been welcome. But Paul is writing to a community where Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. He says that we should welcome in faithfulness all who are weak, or we welcome those who are weak in their faith, but not for the purpose of quarreling. And then in Romans fifteen seven that we didn't have read out today, he says, welcome one another, therefore, just as Christ welcomed you for the glory of God. Kiesma and Walsh, who are the author of Romans to Psalm, the book that I'm basing this on, say that this is a welcome rooted in the very hospitality of Jesus. And whether God is glorified seems to hang on whether the church engages in this kind of generous hospitality. They also go on to make the argument that when Paul says in Romans 12, 9, that love must be sincere, that love must be authentic, that the word there, agape, is actually referring to the agape meal, which was a crucial part of every Christian gathering back then. And thinking about it, how could an agape feast, how could a love feast be genuine? How could it be authentic if people were excluded? It is no exaggeration to say that Paul's greatest concern over the health of this fledgling church, this new community, isn't based on so many of the things that we get hung up on. How old the earth is, what does it mean when Jesus descended, all the soteriology and theology and all the eschatology, all the ologies. He's not worried about the ologies. What he's worried about is, are you welcoming people at your dinner table? And for him, Anything less than a radical inclusion simply will not do. He stresses again and again, as we heard in Romans 14, the importance of looking after everyone, looking after the weaker member, looking after the one that might not know as much, might be timid, might be afraid in this community. He said that what you eat or don't eat, that might matter a whole bunch to you. But if it stops someone newer, if it stops someone weaker from feeling comfortable and knowing who Jesus is, then you ought to put that aside. And that is a really, really hard ask. Well, that's also where our focus is going to be next week. What are we willing to give up? This week, I want to look at how different a meal is when Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. And the idea of real presence of Jesus during mealtimes. As I say, the imperial banquet was one of exclusion. It excluded those who were less important. You can bet that slaves would not have been welcomed there, unlike the Christian love feast, the agape meal where, as we heard, Iris was welcomed with opened arms. 
The imperial banquet was exclusively for the rich and the powerful. Now, the good thing here is there is an awful lot of biblical precedent for the difference it makes when we are radically inclusive and the precedent of the idea that a table should be radically inclusive. It is really hard to find a page in the Gospels where Jesus isn't interacting over food or over a meal in some way. Some people actually compiled a, what they thought was an historically accurate picture of Jesus. Now, <laughs> we're kind of used to the one on the left, and they thought this is probably a man that walks around an awful lot <laughs> in Galilee and is also Jewish. So they made him look Jewish, which seems fairly understandable. But you also notice he's got like a little bit more weight on him. And their theory here is that he seems to be eating all the time. <laughs> so for all the walking around, he's probably still got, you know, a little bit of, a little bit of shape to him. He also, like, I don't think he looks good for a 30-year-old, but times were hard back then. Who knows? Today, we're going to be sharing communion, which is kind of what that early agape meal-sharing feast morphed into. And sadly, for a really long time, the church's approach to communion has been a cause of great division. And if you don't laugh slightly at the irony that the thing that we call communion is one of the things most responsible for division in the church. Take a little time to think about it. The idea of real presence for our Catholic siblings, that the body and blood literally become the blood, the wine and bread literally become the body and blood of Jesus Christ, has been long espoused by them, and it's something that we don't agree with. Now, again, I don't think this is an issue that we live and die on, but it has been one that people have lived and died on in the past. I will also say that the belief that it becomes the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ has led to some just quite amusing things throughout history. So in the 12th century, People got really into the idea of it being the real presence of the body and blood of Jesus. So much so that once the priest consecrated it, they'd like fight over each other to try and get to the front of the church. And there would be like injuries and stuff because they were so eager to get close. And then the priest went, well, this won't do. We need to have something in place. So they decided that the priest would sort of parade it around the congregation, which makes a lot of sense because then you haven't got people fighting over. But then you've just got everyone like running after the priest for a while so <laughs> we can see there are some amusing things that happen with theology again that kind of behavior isn't really that surprising i mean if you really think that jesus is in the room why wouldn't you want to get that close now the thing is that we do actually believe that jesus is in the room and I do believe in the very real presence of Jesus over meal sharing. And I think it's something that Wellspring has actually been doing a long time without even realizing it.
theologian who I quite like, talks about the Last Supper, of which communion is modeled today. But he says, actually, there isn't any innovation in the Last Supper. It's just a resumption of the way that the disciples had always been living with Jesus. Jesus isn't doing anything new for the disciples. He's not doing anything new for those that knew him, but he's doing something very new for those on the outside, those looking in. He takes one cup, and that cup is shared by all, which is a far cry from the exclusion found at the imperial banquet. Far cry from the paranoia that Caesar felt, where he would have his own cupbearer. You know what the cupbearer did? He tasted the wine before Caesar did to make sure that it wasn't poisoned, to make sure that there were no traitors in his midst. Instead, Jesus takes the cup and he hands it to Judas, the one that he knows will betray him. Such is the nature of radical inclusion at the dinner table. At this table, Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not, and that means that everyone is included. Like, seriously, if the guy that (laughs) betrays the king of eternity is still part of a meal, what possible reason could we have for excluding anyone? At the imperial banquet, there will be slaves present, but they will be in the wings doing all the dirty works. Of course they would. But at the Last Supper, Jesus takes a towel, he wraps it around his waist, and he washes the disciples' feet. He takes on that role of a slave because Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not, and lordship looks so different now. What's kind of interesting, I think, is that none of the disciples other than Peter seem particularly bothered by this. Peter says, no, don't wash my feet, that's embarrassing. The rest of them are like, yeah, go for it, like, really get in there. (laughs) We've been walking around a while, as if, yeah, this is just something that Jesus would do. The king of eternity, that's what he does. Oh, there we go. There's some Catholic stuff. And there's Judas and feet washing. Food has always been such a central part of Jesus' ministry. He ate at the houses of the respected as well as the houses of the despised. He ate in the presence of the highly important whilst having his feet anointed by a woman known only by the moniker sinner. As early as Luke 8, we hear that Jesus and his disciples are fed and provided for by some of the women that followed them around. Several chapters earlier, what's the first of Jesus' temptations? Turning stones to bread. And before Jesus even arrives on the scene, John the Baptist is saying, if you have enough food for two, you need to share it. Because that's the kind of kingdom that this new Lord is bringing, that we share, that all will be generous with one another. Christ's presence. And shared food are inseparable 
throughout his earthly ministry. The rich and the poor and the despised and the revered and the oppressor and the oppressed breaking bread together are a marker of his ministry. They're such a central part of his teaching and his way of life that doing anything different to that after his death and resurrection would be a complete betrayal of everything that he had revealed. And Paul knows this. And it's why for all these deep theological questions that Romans asks, and it does, we are left with one question. Who sits at the head of your table? Is it Caesar or is it Jesus? Is your table one of inclusion or exclusion? Because it does seem like this fledgling church in Rome does seem a little bit hasty to start cutting people out. It does seem to want to say, yeah, but we want to hold on to this thing, and that means that you can't be part of this. And Paul says, (laughs) nope, not on my watch. To be clear, Paul isn't original or alone in elevating the importance of a shared meal. It's really no surprise that as early as Acts 2, even before Paul came on the scene, that believers sold their property and their positions, they shared things in common, they broke bread in their homes and ate with one another. And, you know, just because I got a kick out of this this week, Acts 6 says... In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against those the Aramaic-speaking community because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over for them and give our attention to prayer and ministry of the word. It says who they picked and they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. And so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. This Christ-centered, Christ-focused food ethic means they just tear their organizational structure apart and put it back together so that everyone is fed. The presence of Jesus continues with the believers through these prophetic actions. Like, is it any surprise that more and more are added to their number when this kind of exciting thing is happening? To me, it just makes so much sense. These folks have a clear understanding of what the agape feast means, what it being genuine means, and when the potential for harm arises within it, they quickly quash it in a really honoring way that makes everyone better, that makes everyone respected and loved. A few centuries later, the chief priest of Rome, of the Roman religion, I suppose, was frustrated that people keep going to Christianity, but conceded that he could see why with this simple line. These Christians feed our poor as well 
as their own. When Jesus is Lord, there is no hunger. Hunger and injustice always go hand in hand. Where there is no injustice, no one will ever go hungry. And when Jesus' reign is fully realized, no one will feel the pain of malnourishment. And Paul makes it clear that if you are denying people from eating, then Jesus isn't Lord. And that is a problem. So what does this mean for us today? This is usually the part of the sermon where I kind of get a bit mad and cross and say that we should be doing more and saying that I should definitely be doing more, uh, which is okay and it's good. We don't want to become complacent. We want to keep growing. But I think it's really important to take time and recognize some of the incredible things that are going on in this congregation already. The ways that this congregation is already building those longer tables to make sure that everyone is included. Uh, I'm involved with a group of folks that make up the Dismas community. And this is a group of folks who have been incarcerated or in some cases are still in a stage of incarceration. And we meet together and we share a meal and we worship and we learn about God and we have a devotional time and we have a chance to share one another's lives and experiences. And a couple of weeks ago, a few folks from Wellspring went to Dismas. And uh, Steve did the lion's share of the work but wasn't serving the food. But you can see Steve just at the end of the table there. So <laughs> I'm glad you get to be part of it. And I'll be honest. Sometimes when people prepare a meal at Dismas, they make kind of the, the minimum amount of effort. Sometimes it can be tempting to go, well, it's better than nothing. And that's true. It is better than nothing. But my attitude is that good enough is not good enough, and good enough certainly is not God enough. So we make sure the burgers that we cook are good burgers, and they taste good, and the folks appreciate it. And if people want cheese and bacon on their burger, they can have cheese and bacon on their burger, because that's how I like my burgers. And I'd like to think that if Jesus is in that room, and I believe he is, that I should probably offer him whatever he wants on his burgers. He might not have bacon, the whole Jewish thing, although food's clean now, so maybe he would. That's what I'll ask him in heaven. (laughs) Do you like bacon? One of the things is that the members of the Dismas community, people who have been excluded, and in some cases um, because of terrible things that they have done, that they know that sometimes they just get good enough. And it makes a real difference when you have a group that says, no, good enough isn't good enough. When I told them that we were going to do a barbecue for them, one of the members came up to me and said, did, like, did people in your church really say that? Like, do they really want to do something for us? Like for a barbecue? That, like that, it shouldn't be a big deal, right? There's other stuff going on as well. This week, a group from the church are going to Adam House, which is a refugee house 
So folks who have arrived in Canada, in Toronto, and have nothing. And let's be clear that refugees would never have been welcome at the table of Caesar. But this table is different. At this table, Jesus is Lord. And Jesus' table is really, 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 really long. There's 28,000 refugees that came to Canada last year. All of them are at that table. So is Jesus. So are we going to be there too? And folks from Wellspring have said, yes, we want to be part of that. And that's a beautiful thing. This isn't me meaning to just pat, every, pat ourselves on the back. But we're, we've got some newer folks in the congregation, which is really exciting. And I want people to know that what defines Wellspring is not what happens on a Sunday morning, as important as that is. It is the ways that we get to show Jesus to the world, to the people that might not see him otherwise. And we do that by loving them and cooking for them. And showing them they matter. There's other pieces. I'm running out of time. I will quickly say, in the midst of celebrating those exciting things that Wellspring is doing, if you think that God is stirring something in you and saying, that's something I want to be part of, I want to be at that same table, I want to be in the real presence of Jesus, then then talk to me or talk to Jenna, talk to our elders, talk to someone. We have stuff to do, and frankly, we always have people asking us if we can do more. One of the good things about having a reputation as a church that actually cares about these things is that people ask you to do those things. And I recognize there's only so many of us here. We get to be Jesus to those people, but we get to meet Jesus in those places. That is what the table of radical inclusion does. Think about what this means for your week. Maybe it just means inviting someone for food who might not have anyone else inviting them. Maybe it means turning up at someone's house who doesn't have anyone there. One of the saddest things for me uh, about cooking for one is that it's really just as easy to cook for four as it is to cook for one, right? You've already put all the effort in. They just end up eating the same thing. That meal I talked about earlier, that was like three meals worth. It wasn't as good by the end of it. It would have been much nicer fresh. So I'll finish with this. Look, for Paul, there is no greater concern than the way that the community eats together. For Jesus, there is no better way of spending time together than over a good meal. And so for us at Wellspring, let's make the time. Let's make it a priority Whatever that looks like for you, inviting people, going out, seeing people. And you know what? There's also folks who I know here say, I really want to be doing those things. I promise you I'm just not able to do it. Your prayer matters. During the 24-hour prayer, I got prayer letters from people saying, we really want to be there. We can't, but we're going to commit to pray for this time. Your prayer matters. Please keep doing it. Whatever that means for you, recognize it is a bold and beautiful thing. And it's a wonderful way to meet Jesus too. Let's dig deeper wells and let's build longer tables and let's make sure that there is room at the table. And let's sit and eat with Jesus.
Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that you love spending time with us. We thank you for that example that you gave us in your son. And Jesus, we thank you for just how excited you are at the prospect of having a meal with us. We pray that we can find you in the places that seem hard or difficult. That we can find you in the places that so many think that you have abandoned. We pray that we can feel your real presence. In your name we pray. Amen.